Dear listeners, just a quick note before we get started, we now have a Patreon page. If you've been enjoying these episodes and would like to show your support, please visit patreon.com slash Sarah Henlicky Wilson to support the show. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Everybody, today we're bringing you another bonus episode, and for once, not occasioned by some massive crisis on our planet. No, this is a much happier occasion, which is the publication of a new book by Dad. So I thought I would take a few minutes to talk to him about where this book come from and why people should read it. Dad, are you ready? Yes. You want to mention the name of the book? Yes, it's called Lutheran Theology, A Critical Introduction. Dad, tell us, why don't you just unpack the title for us? Because I have a feeling that behind those simple words, there is a great deal of dispute, shall we say. Yes, um, Lutheran theology is not identical with Luther's theology. It is the tradition of theological Christian reflection that was initiated by Luther Uh, and has claimed through the centuries to be inspired by Luther. So Lutheran theology, number one, is not identical to Luther's theology. Already you have Philip Melanchthon's version of Luther's theology, uh, and that really uh, is massively influential on Lutheran confessionalism. And then later, some 50 years later, Melanchthon's students were the author's of the formula of Concord uh, and initiated the epoch of Lutheran orthodoxy. Uh, So these are already confessionalism and orthodoxy are two historical versions of Luther's theology adapted to changing times and circumstances. So I can already detect two two things here. One is that I can immediately see ways in which it would be um, great for Lutheran theology to be very close to Luther and other ways in which it would be awful, thinking especially of his uh, bad habit of demonization. But secondly, I can also see that just because of the nature of Lutheranism as it evolved, there would be a uh, rabbling struggle to claim that you were the most faithful to the best of Luther and that anyone who disagreed with you was a bad guy who was corrupting the you know apostolic deposit of St. Luther. That, these disputes even began in Luther's lifetime. John Agricola uh, argued for a position that later became identified as antinomianism, but he claimed to be following the best insights of Luther. Uh, Andreas Osiander, likewise, uh, based his uh, theology on what he claimed to be the best insights of Luther, and he was later deemed to be a deviant. And my friend, the Finnish theologian, Ali Pekavainio, wrote a book describing the contending Lutheran doctrines of justification in the 50-year period from the 1530 Augsburg Confession until the 1580 Book of Concord. He discovered no less than five different versions of the signature Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith. Well, obviously, four of them were wrong. Well, the <laughs> formula of Concord picked one of the five, you know, and that became the signature doctrine of Lutheran orthodoxy, which we can today briefly describe as the exclusively forensic doctrine of justification 
namely that God does not impute sin because God credits the righteousness of Christ to the believer in an act of sovereign grace so that the believer is righteous by grace, not in reality, through the sovereign crediting to the believer of Christ's righteousness in place of her or his own deficient righteousness. And that becomes then the signature doctrine of Lutheran orthodoxy. Of course, I've argued in many ways that that's really not what Luther was saying in the 1520s when his teaching was justification by faith, and that faith is itself the sovereign gift and work of the Holy Spirit. It's faith that personally takes the righteousness of Christ and applies it to oneself. It's for me personally. And as a result, the Augsburg Confession defines justifying faith this way. When one believes that the righteousness of Christ applies for me. So there's actually two beliefs involved according to the Augsburg Confession. I believe in the righteousness of Christ objectively, and I believe that even I, I the sinner, the unworthy, am a recipient of this grace that it applies to me. That's the early Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith, which includes, of course, this initial renewing of the human person by the Holy Spirit in the grant, the bestowal of faith, already the beginning then of the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification. But the the formula of Concord 50 years later said, well, no, 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 the Augsburg Confession and the, uh, they were speaking imprecisely. They didn't get this quite right. They were, they didn't really mean to say that regeneration being born again, coming to faith, is the same thing as grace. No, the grace is objective, and whether you get it or not is secondary. What's important is that it's the objectivity of God's non-imputation of sin because of his imputation of Christ's righteousness, so-called objective justification. So that was the level of development and dispute in just the first 50 years. And now we've had another four and a half centuries of this. Yes. So your book takes us through specifically threading this question about justification, distinction between law and gospel, and how that has played out ever since, right? That's that's what the book covers. Right, exactly. I I try to, I, I argue against Lutheran essentialism, that there is one single Lutheran theology that can be uh, identified, formalized, and stated once and for all so that everything else is deviation. That sounds like a very generous claim that's going to piss off a lot of people. I hope it does, (laughs) because it's time for Lutherans to realize something's gone terribly wrong. It's, 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 It's time to realize that in the maw of controversy in the 1520s, a doctrine of justification was forged, which was significant, important. It had hermeneutical power uh, at that time, but it was not a once-and-for-all formulation of a doctrine that can stand the test of time, let alone 50 years when five contending, different contending versions of it appear, appeared very quickly. So I argue in my book that 
we have to take not an essentialist approach, but a kind of family resemblance approach in which the objective baseline is the literary legacy of Martin Luther. Again, not speculations about what's in Luther's head and what he's thinking, but the fact that he left this enormous literary legacy, very interesting, very inspired, in some places also very painful. But he left this huge legacy of writing. And so that Lutheran theology can be traced through the centuries in terms of various selections and appropriations from Luther's literary legacy in new epochs to confront new situations. So we see a family resemblance between Lutheran theologies through the centuries without falling for the trap of trying to say this is the real Luther theology and everything else is a deviation. So it's a non-fundamentalist approach to Luther. Yeah, there is a kind of Luther fundamentalist. Luther said it, I believe it, that settles it. I, I, I just think Luther said so many things, and often they were quite contradictory to one another. It, <laughs> it takes historical scholarship to sort all this out. And even then, you don't come to certain results. You come to probable results that are subject to revision in the light of new evidence and new argument. But, you know, it doesn't seem like this should, in some respects, be such a controversial claim because it's it's what we've seen all throughout history in the relationship between inspired texts, whether they're called holy or not, or just founders of, you know, intellectual breakthroughs that then the disciples sort through. And so you have this continual, you know, ad fontes return to the sources, but this continual need to test and update and speak afresh and try again and uh, incorporate new data. I mean, th- this is this is what the, the intellectual life is, no matter what religious or intellectual tradition you're in, right? I mean, th- it seems like this shouldn't be so hard, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but it, evidently it is. It is hard because Certain hyperbolic claims have been made on behalf of, by Luther himself and behalf of people who want to follow in his footsteps that this is the word of God, uh, no ifs, ands, or buts, uh, no questions permitted. Now, there's a certain genius to Luther's doing that uh, in the way that he, in fact, did it at his best. But there's also a lot of obscurantism and a lot of uh, self-serving stuff going on in Luther's claim to be the arbiter of all future orthodoxy. And I think we have to take Luther fairly sympathetically, but also critically. And what I try to show in the book, I go through four epochs of Lutheran theology, uh, confessionalism and orthodoxy, including uh, a significant discussion of Lutheran pietism. Then I talk about Lutheran liberalism following the philosopher Immanuel Kant and the 19th century, especially the great, greatest Lutheran theologian in Germany in the 19th century, Albrecht Ritschel, uh, and those who followed him, Otto von Harnock, and so forth. And then in the 20th century, I take my point of departure from Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his very interesting and very uh, Lutheran Bethel Confession, which was uh, written in collaboration with another 
Lutheran theologian Hermann Zasse against the pro-Nazi German Christians. Uh, this abortive Bethel confession did not see the light of day. It was sabotaged, but it was recovered for uh, scholarship in the 1950s. And what I find in there so instructive is the Bonhoeffer's deployment of the latent Trinitarianism of Luther's legacy uh, to, to argue against the heresy of enthusiasm on the part of the German Christians. And I argue that this is really the incentive for the neo-Orthodox epoch of Lutheran theology, with a great deal of stimulation, just as in Bonhoeffer, from the Reformed theologian Karl Barth. But I particularly single out three, uh, Pannenberg, Jungel, and Jensen, as representing the renewal of Trinitarianism in 20th century Lutheran theology. So those are the four epochs I cover. Luther's initial theology of the cross with its reformatory impetus, confessionalism to orthodoxy, including the pietist reaction, liberal Lutheranism, and then 20th century Trinitarian renewal. Okay, so tell us then why any average Lutheran layperson, pastor, or even, you know, ordinary workaday theologian should particularly care about this history. Well, it's been an extremely significant history. All Protestants in one version or another trace themselves to Luther's Reformation. And all Catholics, conservative or progressive, have to position themselves one way or the other uh, for or against Luther's Reformation. So the, there's no question that in terms of theological history, Lutheran theology is pivotal pivotal. The problem is that outsiders outside of the Lutheran tradition are at the mercy, really, of what Lutherans say about Luther. And so <laughs> that's true. I mean, in any given period, uh, you know, well, what, is, what does Luther really mean? Who do you look to for answers? You look for contemporary Lutherans telling you what Luther means. Of course, just in the description of the four epochs I just made, these descriptions of what Luther was really all about are highly relative to contemporary um, uh, theologies and their appropriations of Luther. So outsiders need an introduction if they want knowledgeably to interact with Luther. Also, insiders need an introduction to Lutheran theology if they want to know, be cognizant of the possibilities, the diverse possibilities of Lutheran theology historically. And particularly today, when we're going through some kind of cultural watershed whose results are still not predictable, uh, there's so many new third world Lutherans trying to appropriate Luther's theology uh, there's a lot of confusion in Europe and America about how to appropriate Luther's theology, particularly after the Holocaust. So a lot of ways people need to be knowledgeable about the history of interpretation in order to make intelligent appropriations of the Luther legacy for today. 
Yeah, and it's true, you know, like when you start seminary or something or you take your introduction to theology class in in college, you don't have any way of even knowing that what you're hearing is, you know, a certain stream of tradition in the interpretation. You're just told, you know, this is introduction to the Lutheran confessions or introduction to Martin Luther's theology or whatever. And, you know, there's no reason why you should have an awareness that there are multiple and competing strains. And if you never have a chance to kind of update and expand your knowledge, what's going to happen sooner or later is someone is going to say it in a way that doesn't sound right to you. And it's going to, you know, I mean, if you care at all about these issues, I we presume if you listen to this podcast, you do, there's going to be a certain kind of explosive potential there. And um, so, I mean, of course, I, you know, I read your book in manuscript form. And it just, it was to me, it was really interesting, because I, I recognized all four of these streams in various ways, without having, you know, you know, I had sort of the decent working sense of Lutheran theological history, but it really helped to kind of sort out like, oh, I see, when so-and-so makes that kind of assertion, this is the, the stream that it's coming from, and that's why it seems to be in such great tension with, you know, this person over here. Yeah, Sarah, I can actually, you know, report a similar experience. When I went to seminary, to Seminex, in 1978, uh, the leading lights in systematic theology were Robert Bertram and Edward Schrader, and both of them had been liberated from Missouri Synod fundamentalism, ironically enough, by the conservative German Lutheran theologian Werner Ehlert, and they found Ehlert to be very liberating over against Missouri Synod fundamentalism. Well, uh, I started reading Ehlert, and I had a wholly different reaction to him being an Easterner from the secular and nihilistic East Coast. And here's Ehlert basically retrieving Luther through the lenses of the philosophy of Nietzsche. Nietzsche is everywhere, uh, 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 Ehlert wrote in his early book, The Battle Over Christendom. And Ehlert's interpretation of the hiddenness of God was basically sieved through the mesh of Nietzsche's doctrine of the eternal return of the same. Now, those are very controversial statements. I'm sure fans of Ehlert are going to be on their high horses at me for having said that, but that's how (laughs) I see it. I see Ehlert as someone who was uh, basically saying the crisis of Western civilization after the Great War uh, the rise of existentialism, the loss of, of, of the meaning of Christendom, all of this is uh, uh, um, an apologetic bridge for Luther's hard distinction between the hidden God and the revealed God. And that's how Ehlert's theology played out. And I didn't like it uh, as a seminary student. Uh, And I found that the law gospel distinction was being exaggerated into an ontological dualism close to Marcion or some other kind of Gnostic system. And I was very unhappy with all of that. Luckily for me, a a history professor by the name of John Grow, uh, who was a student of Martin Marty, had mercy upon me and agreed to do an independent study with me in Luther's writings. And he had me read all of Luther's tracts against the incipient Protestant movement, against Karlstadt, the treatise against the heavenly prophets, 
and the two great Eucharistic treatises, uh, Confession Concerning Christ's Supper, and that these words, this is my body, shall stand forever. And uh, I learn, and then maybe even the little treatise concerning rebaptism. And I read all of these uh, essays, uh, treatises by Luther, in which he rejected the uh, extreme Protestant theology that was erupting all around himself, exploiting his own emphasis on the existential decision of faith for me and turning it into a sole principle. So Luther actually says in Confession Concerning Christ's Supper, up until now I have focused upon the subjective act of human faith because that's the most wonderful thing. But now I see it's necessary also to talk about the object of faith, Jesus Christ, who is truly present in his own risen, glorified body for us in the word and sacraments. So that was kind of already in my seminary education, this, uh, this back and forth between competing interpretations of Luther. One more anecdote. When I went to Union, I took a wonderful course with a very fine scholar in there named David Lotz on the 19th century liberal theologian Albrecht Ritschel. And uh, Lotz helped me to see how philosophical idealism really denuded Luther because Ritschel basically insisted that Luther's insight was into the God as love. This is the true insight. So that the experience of the wrath of God is a subjective illusion. It's not really true. Why? Because the ultimate timeless truth is that God is love. And Lotz showed me in his study of ritual and comparing ritual and Luther how badly ritual misread Luther on the wrath of God. For Luther basically teaches a militant kind of love, a holy kind of love. God's love must be against, that's the wrath, must be against what's against love. Yeah, okay, so I, I think there's beyond any question of a doubt now, these multiple streams of Lutheranism. So as we just wrap up this short little episode, um, tell me why now? Like, why did you write this book and what uh, what is the ultimate takeaway or your hope for what it can do for for theologians and other interested readers? Well, I, uh, I hope, uh, first of all, how it came about. The press editor at the press, Cascade Press, contacted me and said, hey, wouldn't you write a book for us uh, in this series of introductions to X, Y, and Z? And it came in, 15, in 2017 when I was very, very busy with other things. So I said yes, but not right away. And uh, I think I realized that this was a book I could write very quickly because it all of the scholarship has already been executed in my, my more academic books. And so I agreed to do it. It took me almost, then I had the stroke, of course, and that waylaid me for a year. But then I, I got around to it, and I was actually able to write it over three or four months during the winter, I think two years ago. Um, so it was a, uh, and it was a chance for me to 
to synthesize and express in popular language for average readers some of the more serious stuff that I'd done in my academic books. So what do I hope it does for readers? Well, like I said, if you're an insider to the Lutheran tradition, you need to know from the get-go the numerous historical possibilities in which Luther and his legacy can be appropriated in diverse ways. That doesn't leave you a victim of all these appropriations because there are certain criteria uh, that need to be satisfied to justify an appropriation. Uh, I think just two very quickly. Does it attend to all the evidence? And we're talking here about Luther's literary legacy. Does it attend to all the evidence uh, or is it unfairly selective? Is it a, is it a cherry-picking reading that ignores especially texts that speak against your own interpretation? That's one criteria, that it, it treats all the evidence. The second criteria that goes along with this, then, is that if there is contrary evidence, do you acknowledge it? and explain it adequately and why your preferred Luther is indeed to be preferred. So, for example, as people from the podcast know, I think Luther's bad habit of demonizing foes is not something to be emulated. And I don't uh, shuffle that evidence of Luther demonizing Pope peasants and Jews, I don't shove that under the rug or try to ignore it. Instead, what's incumbent upon me, if I'm to interpret Luther as a resource for the theology of the beloved community, I have to give an account of that of those bad facts. I have to give an intellectually satisfying explanation of how Luther failed his own best insights. So those are two criteria that I would hope readers take away. Does it account for all the evidence? And does it adequately, adequately interpret the bad evidence, the evidence that's contrary to your interpretation, et cetera? That's really helpful. And I mean, it, that seems to be a, a bare minimum for any kind of responsible intellectual appropriation of another person's work. Yeah, I would hope so. And I hope that the, the, the book is uh, profitable for readers in that way. Okay, one last question before we go, which is you've laid out these four epochs of Lutheran theology. Do you care to offer any predictions or at least hopes about the fifth? Well, that's the period that we're going through currently. And um, I, I say in the introduction, I initially thought that I should have a chapter on the current scene. And I realized that it's much too big and I'm much too close to it to ever pull this off, that would be a monograph in itself. So um, I basically then cut to the chase and I, I, I said one thing uh, that I think is of abiding significance. I agree with the early Karl Barth that Lutheran theology is particularly vulnerable to a reduction of theology to anthropology. As much as I love Bonhoeffer, I see all sorts of theologians 
uh, claiming the authority of Bonhoeffer to make exactly this reduction of theology to anthropology. In fact, I read uh, on the on Facebook the other day a theologian basically saying, God is irrelevant as long as we are Jesus people. And of course, I think that's absurd because you can't have Jesus without his heavenly Father, who is the God of Israel, uh, and their Holy Spirit, who unites Jesus with his heavenly Father. I just think that's that's totally absurd. But Feuerbach, Ludwig Feuerbach, the mid-19th century German philosopher of the radical Hegelian left, wrote the book The Essence of Christianity, in which he argued that theology is in fact anthropology, that alienated human beings uh, project on the big blank screen of divinity their own alienated human essence, so that if they're unloved and incapable of loving, they project the God of love. If they're weak and defeated, they project the God of power, etc., etc., etc. And all of these projections of divinity are to be interpreted as alienated anthropology. Human beings should be powerful. Human beings should be loved and loving, lovable and capable of love, etc., etc. And and the evidence that Feuerbach supplied for his thesis was all quotations from Luther. Luther was his primary evidence for this reduction of theology to anthropology. And Karl Barth, in his introduction uh, that he wrote to a reissue of Ludwig Feuerbach's Essence of Christianity in the 1920s, basically made the point that the Lutheran uh, kapax, the flesh is capable of the infinite, the Lutheran kapax opens the door to this reduction. Now, I don't agree with Barth's Calvinistic, extra-Calvinisticum rejection of the Lutheran kapax, but I do think that Barth points out a real vulnerability in Lutheran theology. And I suggest that much of what we're witnessing on the contemporary scene uh, is either on conservative side of conservative Lutheranism, practically a, a retreat into the Calvinistic uh, rejection uh, of any commerce between the infinite and the finite, a kind of a neo-Thomism on the one side, that's the conservative side, and on the uh, left-wing side, a kind of uh, Feuerbachian reduction of God to anthropology that we see all over the place in liberation theologies and so forth. So that's my warning about the current situation, and I, th- I challenge readers to a profounder grasp of Luther's, what I call Luther's neo-Chalcedonian Christology that avoids this either-or between the divine and human natures. Fantastic. All right. Well, we'll have a link in the show notes to the book so you can order it and read it for yourself. Send us any questions or comments you have. We would love to hear from you.